Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast is my friend Tyler Johnson. Welcome to the podcast, Tyler. Thanks so much for having me, Richard. I really appreciate the chance to talk with you. I um, reached out to Tyler. Uh, Most of my guests reach out to me, but once in a while I'll come across some content that I feel would be helpful for you, our listeners. And Tyler agreed to come on the podcast and share some of the things we're going to talk about. But just by way of introduction, Tyler grew up in Utah. He served a mission in Mexico. He's a married father of three, eight, 11, and five. He lives in Palo Alto. By profession, he's a medical doctor. He's an oncologist. He also splits his time teaching at Stanford, in the medical school at Stanford. Um, got a medical degree from the University of Pennsylvania. I assume there's some residencies and some other long, some other experiences. Was it all at UPenn or was it other places? Uh, no, well, so I did medical school at the University of Pennsylvania. I did my bachelor's degree at BYU. And then I did my internship, residency, chief residency, and fellowship. All of those were at Stanford. And then I stayed and joined the faculty when I finished all my training in 2016. Did you have any ties to Palo Alto before now you're raising your family there? Is this new territory? No. In fact, we when we when I came out here to interview, I had never even been to Northern California, much <laughs> less Palo Alto or Stanford before. I I didn't know really a thing about it. And then we fully planned on being here for just a couple of years for the first part of my training. But every time we've had a chance to leave, it's been so um we've just loved it so much that we could never bear to go anywhere else. So I don't know if we'll be here forever and ever, but for right now we we really love it. Well, thanks for the work you're doing. It's a long road, that medical school road. And um, for younger people who are wondering if they can get through the road, I I meet real people like Dr. Johnson that is through the road and now um, in his early 40s doing so much good work in many circles. Um, this is a podcast about teaching the gospel. Um, Tyler made a post that I became aware of of just talking about how his parents taught the gospel including the kind of thornier issues in our church, why he was growing up. And instead of then going through a de- deconstruction or reconstruction stage, Tyler kind of had a framework going forward just to handle complicated things. And I, I'm not sure that's the best way to frame it up, and I'll let Tyler kind of run from here. But I just thought it would be helpful for some of you that are reconstructing and needing or deconstructing, reconstructing, or those of you that are parents or local leaders that are looking for a framework to raise your LDS kids in a way that when they come across a thorny issue, doesn't sort of jolt them um, and maybe just gives them a way to work through that. Tyler also has written in BYU Studies Quarterly in the spring of 2021. It's called A Teacher's Plea. He'll probably reference that in the podcast. We'll link to that in the show notes. So is that okay for an introduction, Tyler? Yep, that that's generous, and I appreciate the introduction. And, and yeah, I think um, you know, uh, I, I think it's become clear to pretty much everybody. It's a sort of an open secret, or maybe it's just open. I don't even know if it's a secret anymore. That a lot of people in the church are really struggling. I think that there has been a um, a sort of. Um, I think there has been a, an intersection between modernity and especially the modernity that comes with the digital revolution, that is the internet and social media and all the rest of it, 
And the traditional way that many people engage with the gospel that has resulted in a lot of casualties, right? I called it an intersection, but it's sometimes it feels more like a car crash, right? There, there are just a lot of, I think, a lot of people who are going through an enormous amount of um, spiritual anguish, feeling like things that they once took for granted and that once, in many cases, formed the very basis of their lives, the basis of their identity, not only of themselves, but also their understanding of the universe and their place in it, has sort of all come crashing down around them. And this is something that I've encountered on uh, social media. It's something that I've encountered as a counselor in a bishopric and as a bishop and as a and and as an institute teacher and just as a friend. Um, and so I guess my hope in being invited here today is to try to speak some peace to some of that anguish and also to try to maybe help us to um, collectively come to the recognition of ways that maybe we can, you know, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, right? So I, I part of what I'm talking about may be helpful in the reconstruction phase that you mentioned earlier. I think actually it is, but I hope it's even more uh, helpful before the deconstruction. What I'm hoping is that we can talk about a way to prevent the need, at least for a traumatic, anguished deconstruction, right? Everybody is deconstructing and reconstructing all the time. That's just called being human, right? So it's not like we're going to obviate the need for that entirely. But I do think there's a way to think about things and to approach the gospel that doesn't leave us in this sort of feeling like we're in this zero-sum game that I think a lot of members end up feeling like they're in, and then it results in this really you know, traumatic experience partway through. Now, having said all of that, I, I want to make a few things that are uh, clear up front. The first one is, nothing I am going to say is meant to reflect positively on me, like I'm some special person that has some sort of special insight into how this is supposed to work. Because I'm not, and I don't. I don't like th- none of this is me sitting around and thinking interesting thoughts. So I want to make that clear. Number one, number two, I'm going to talk a lot about my parents, but I know that my parents would be the first to say if they were here that they don't want anybody to think that they had the answers. They don't want anybody to think that they were perfect. They don't want anybody to think anything like that because none of those things are true. Any either, they're wonderful people, and I respect and admire and love them, but they're not perfect and. And their parenting wasn't perfect either, and mine certainly isn't. Nothing about me is perfect. Uh, far from it. The third thing is, it, it might I might inadvertently make it sound as if they had some 10-point plan before I was born for how they were going to, I don't know, you know, modernity-proof teaching me the gospel or something. And that's also certainly not true, right? They were just doing what they were doing and sort of, I imagine, making it up as <laughs> they go along, just like all parents do. But I do think that the way they did that was prescient in some really, really important ways. And I'll talk a little bit about maybe some of the reasons why they were able to do that. And then the fourth thing, which is maybe the most important, is that I want to make it clear to your listeners that I I have nothing but love, admiration, and respect for all people who undertake their spiritual journey with love and integrity. And that's true, whatever their eventual destination is. That's true if they're 
mad at the church. It's true if they've left the church. It's true if they hate the church. It's true if they're, you know, feel great resentment toward the church. And it's true if they stay in the church and if they're a stake president or if they're a Relief Society president or if they're none of those things. Like, I have nothing but love and respect and admiration for all of those people in all of those parts of that journey. And so I don't want to make it seem like what I'm saying today is some way of trying to, you know, sort of subtly manipulate people into some thing that I think that they need to eventually do, because that's not what I'm, that's not what this is about. What it is about is that I think that the restored gospel of Jesus Christ has some genuinely powerful and deeply beautiful things to offer people and to offer the world. And I would hate it if those things were, if we collectively missed out on them because we fail to, not because they're not there, but because we fail to engage in the gospel in a way that allows us to access those powerful, beautiful truths. And so that's what this is about. This is not about how to manipulate your teenager. This is not about how to try to, you know, rest somebody whose spiritual journey has taken them somewhere else back into doing what we want. But that's not what this is about. This is about trying to equip people with a tool set that I hope is uh, I hope is conducive to mending divides and to uh, sort of unlocking or allowing us to better access what I think are, as I said, beautiful and powerful truths contained in the gospel. Does that sound fair enough? That sounds great. I'm, you know, guess I don't often know a ton about my, our listeners, my guests. I felt really confident that this would be a good podcast. And now hearing Tyler talk, I'm, I'm excited to hear the things he's going to share. And thank you for framing it up that way. There's so much grace and love and understanding. Yeah, uh, you're welcome. So let me give a little bit of background first. Um, my parents, I think, were quite unusual in that my dad is this, I don't even know really what to call him, but the best that I've come up with is that he was, he's kind of like an amateur church historian. So people who have lived in Salt Lake for a long time, and even a lot of people who don't live in Salt Lake, know of a place called Benchmark Books. So Benchmark Books was run by this guy named Kurt Bench, who was a sort of a quiet mainstay of the I don't know, church literary scene, I guess, in Salt Lake for many years until he died uh, a couple of years ago. And Benchmark Books is this kind of nexus for all kinds of interesting currents of thought and culture and whatever in, in Salt Lake and in the church. So nobody, as far as I know, has ever heard of my dad in that context, but my dad is a was sort of a behind-the-scenes um, force at benchmark books. So for instance, for many years, my dad, back when catalogs were things that you printed on paper and stapled together and mailed out to people, my dad used to write the catalogs for benchmark books, which is a, you know, actually a very, requires a very great depth of sort of inside knowledge about what the books were and why they were important and how they should be priced and what their history was and how to assess their, you know, what kind of state they were in. And anyway, all of those kinds of things. And, and so my dad 
you know, was friends with Kurt forever and ever and ever, and then did a lot of this kind of behind the scenes work. And by the same token, he runs a business through eBay where he sells kind of minor church antiquities and old church books. And then he has this huge library of church books that probably is, you know, 2,000, 2,500 books, something like that, including a bunch of strange things like the hymn book from John Taylor's Temple Prayer Circle, which I guess they used to sing hymns in the person, I don't even know, but whatever. My dad has that book. Wow. And like, you know, he has Brigham Young's Footstool and I don't know, all kinds of strange, crazy things. And so he, and so because of that, 30 years ago, when it was pretty unusual for people to have a really, you know, deep knowledge of the complicated aspects of church history, my dad already did. And even though he's not, you know, he doesn't have a PhD, he's an attorney, he doesn't have a PhD, he was never a professor or whatever, but he just had this sort of deep knowledge of church history. And so as a consequence, there were, as far as I know, virtually no aspects, complicated or, or difficult aspects of church history that were unknown to my dad. And so that was just part of the way that we learned the gospel, right? And and so I think the first thing that I learned from my parents in a very direct way was that if we are going to have the kind of faith within a restored Christian framework that is going to allow us to have a, a disciplined and, and a um, resilient discipleship in then the 20th, now the 21st century, we have to account for and embrace the complexity, and we have to figure out what to do with it, right? We can't, so the way that I, this is, these are my words, not my dad's, but the way that I would um, sort of, uh, the way I have conceptualized this is that I think Unfortunately, we've developed this really dangerous cultural quirk of presenting the gospel as if it were a fairy tale, right? And so we, and so, you know, fairy tales have a nice list of good guys and a nice list of bad guys. And that's how we tell church history, right? So the church members in Nauvoo were the good guys and the people who were not church members were the bad guys, right? We have these nice sort of tidy categories. And by the same token, the stories that we like to tell, whether scriptural stories or church history stories are all nice and linear, right? So that you just sort of, you know, if you, so like the life of Joseph Smith would be an example. We just sort of go from you know, good sounding thing to good sounding thing to good sounding thing to good sounding thing. Occasionally, he encounters trials, but the trials are always portrayed as things that were extraneous to him that came to him, and then he sort of pushed them back and overcame the trial. And, you know, that's just sort of the way that the story unfolds until he's martyred. And so we love the fairy tale version of the gospel for the same reason that all kids love fairy tales. There are good guys and bad guys, and the good guys live happily ever after, and the bad guys don't, right? And if it's a grim fairy tale, then they face some horrific fate. And so I think that the first thing that I learned is that the fairy tale is just a bunch of baloney. The fairy tale never existed. We made up the fairy tale. Most of the early church members didn't even believe the fairy tale, but we like it, right? It's like the Hallmark card version of the gospel, but it's just a bunch of baloney. It, it never existed. We shouldn't have expected it to exist. We probably shouldn't have ever told ourselves the stories that way because 
what we I think thought we were doing was kind of you know building a hedge around the history to try to insulate it from the realities of complicated messy mortality but what we actually ended up doing instead was was learning a, a version of the gospel that doesn't stand up to scrutiny and that doesn't you know isn't corroborated by the facts and if you if all of your faith is invested in a fairy tale then when you find out that the fairy tale is not true then at least apparently there is nothing like the thing of your faith has evaporated and so then you come to the conclusion that there was never anything to have faith in the in the first place so just to give you an example of how this worked in my house growing up uh some of your listeners may know that there was a famous um biography of joseph smith that was written in like the 1940s called no man knows my history by a woman named fawn brody it was famous in that it sort of exploded onto the national scene and it was this sort of psychobiography that gave naturalistic explanations for all of these different things about you know why joseph smith did what he did and you know basically saying that none of what happened in his life was actually divine but it was all you know sort of imagined or invented or whatever um so after that book came out, Hugh Nibley, who everybody you know knows and loves in the church, wrote this little pamphlet in response called No Ma'am, That's Not My History, right? So with this, you can even hear in the title this kind of puckish Hugh Nibley sense of humor, right? And so on my dad's bookshelf, among his thousands of books, here was No Man Knows My History, and here was No Man That's Not My History. But No Man Knows My History is, I don't know, 300 or something pages long. No Man That's Not My History is like a 40-page pamphlet. So, of course, as a 17-year-old, I wanted the pamphlet, not the book, right? <laughs> so I picked up the pamphlet and read the pamphlet, and Hugh Nibley is very... Uh, appears anyway to be very adroit at just dismissing all of the stuff that Fawn Brody says is, you know, this is hogwash and this is ridiculous and everybody knows this is wrong and she's just making things up and whatever. So after I read the pamphlet, I remember going to my dad that night and saying, oh, dad, I'm so glad I read Hugh Nibley's pamphlet and now I understand that that book, No Man Knows My History is just, you know, it's just a bunch of garbage and that that's all been refuted and yada, yada. So as a dad, now, in fairness, many dads wouldn't have the knowledge to do this anyway, but even having the knowledge, it would have been much easier for my dad to say, oh, yeah, you're right, it is. It's just all a bunch of garbage, and I'm so glad that you learned better, right? That would have been by far the easy dad thing to do. But instead, he said, well, you know, time, we should talk about this. And then we sat down, and he explained to me that that Hugh Nibley, for all of his gifts as an Egyptologist and cultural critic, critic and other things, was actually not a very good American historian. And he further explained that real historians have mostly concluded that Fawn Brody's book, while imperfect and while it's certainly been superseded by you know decades of scholarship since then, was an important landmark and was and had really important things to say about Joseph Smith that nobody had ever said before and that were frankly probably correct. And that no man that's not my history was actually pretty lacking from like a rigorous historical perspective. And so I really shouldn't hang my hat on that being an easy way to dismiss this otherwise difficult book. And then he went on to explain one of his favorite things, which his sort of favorite thing, which he attributed to Juanita Brooks. I don't know if that's really true or not, but Juanita Brooks was this sort of amateur historian in the church's history who was unusual in that she was a woman, didn't have advanced training, but did really fantastic history from what I understand. Um, 
my dad says, whether this is true or not, that she always used to say, talking about Joseph Smith, I love my prophet, warts and all. And that was kind of my dad's motto, was that we need to learn to love the modern church and the historical church and all the people in the historical church, warts and all. And so, you know, when I grew up learning about whatever, Joseph Smith and masonry or uh, treasure digging or magical worldview or, you know, all of those kinds of things, some of them, my dad thinks are not a particularly big deal. Like being a Mason back then was not actually that unusual and whatever. It didn't probably mean that much. Other things do seem to be genuinely concerning, right? Like there are elements of Joseph Smith's polygamy that are very, at least puzzling, if not downright worrisome, right? But anyway, but the point of all of this is to say that I was just never given the idea that let's just say Joseph Smith, but this applies more broadly to all of church history. There was just never any idea that he was perfect or close to perfect or that he was even supposed to be those things. And so my uh, manner of engaging with how to think about him or Brigham Young or, or whomever, or for that matter, Gordon B. Hinckley or whoever was the prophet at the time we were having these discussions, I just never put on to them the expectation that they should be anything like close to perfect because I, I don't know, that just was not part of the way that we understood the gospel in our house. And so then when I was in medical school, for example, and Richard Bushman uh, released Rough Stone Rolling and I read Rough Stone Rolling, there were certainly, I mean, I had never known in that much detail about Joseph's life and there were certainly still elements of it that, that you know, were new to me and some of which concerned me and some of which I still don't understand. But it just was not this sort of qualitative cataclysm, right? It wasn't this like, I grew up with, no offense if you're listening, Liz, Lim, Liz Lemon Swindle, you do very beautiful paintings. But like, there are some Liz Lemon Swindle paintings, for instance, that portray Joseph and Emma as if they're this monogamous Victorian couple. And if that's the image that you grew up with, and then you read Rough Stone Rolling, and you learn about you know polygamy and polyandry and all the rest of it, those seem irreconcilable, right? There's very little flexibility, as it turns out, to the fairy tale version of anything. And so then when you learn that the fairy tale version is wrong, there's just no way to to reconcile them. And so it it can feel as if faith as if abandoning faith is the only live option anymore. And so none of that is to say that that uh, this has made my faith journey easy or the answer is obvious or that even I have all the answers because I don't. But but it just is to say that it, it allows breathing room, right? It allows a sort of a flexibility and a sort of a moral philosophical generosity to say, well, okay, like actually, is there any scriptural evidence that any prophet was ever supposed to have been perfect? Because if there is, I can't find it right? Moses was not perfect. Noah was not perfect, right? Like, I mean, Jonah was not perfect. I mean, like nobody saved Jesus. I mean, Paul was not perfect. Like Peter was not perfect. Like, nobody was perfect, right? Except Jesus. So I don't even, like, it's not even really clear to me where that idea even came from, because it doesn't seem scriptural and it doesn't seem doctrinal. It's cultural, I think. And so this is just one example, but the point is to say, as, you know, Elder Holland once quipped, mortals are all God has ever had to work with. He has to deal with it, and so must we, right? But it's one of those things that we sort of, yeah, know that he says that, but we don't actually really believe it or apply it in our lives. But my parents did. And so it just 
wasn't a thing. And again, I'm not saying that makes it easy, and I'm not dismissing the difficulty, in particular in Joe Smith example, you know, polygamy and polyandry, that gets very messy, and I'm not claiming easy answers to that. But I'm just saying it's a it's the flexibility of the framework is the thing that makes the difference. So that so that then even when there aren't easy answers, you can say, well, okay, but this is a complicated question, right? Like, what am I supposed to do with a person who introduced into the religious world genuinely remarkable theological and lived religious aspects? I think that's undoubtedly true. But in the context of this very complicated, arguably sometimes morally fraught life, right? That's a complicated, interesting question, but you can't even ask the question if you've been brought up in a framework that doesn't allow any flexibility for thinking about things like that. I don't know if I explained that in a way that made sense. Um, yeah, it's really helpful. At least it is for me personally. And that example of your father is terrific. And my gut reaction as a father would be to thank my son for reading the fairy tale version and just be glad that he's never going to have a faith crisis because he's sort of dismissed the complexities and then recognizing now that I'm older that what your father did was so helpful for your long-term journey to manage complexity and what a beautiful teaching moment is your father alive yep he is yeah so tell us his first name just in case anybody knows your father his name is norm johnson so um that was a beautiful teaching moment and i love the practicality of that, that really resonated with me in the, in the concept that you're teaching. Um, so that's excellent. Just keep sharing thoughts, Tyler. Yeah. So the second big one, I think I would say is that, um, I've talked a lot about my dad. Um, you know, my mom, there are lots of people in the world who say, Oh, the most important thing is to love other people. But my mom doesn't say that. She just is that. Wow. She just, you know, like there was never any question that whatever we did, we would be loved. And the more I have grown and the more I have, and that was true for my dad too. I don't want to say it was just my mom, but I'm just saying that. Whereas with my dad, I would often engage in these kind of, you know, uh, complex back and forth intellectual arguments, sometimes with my mom about other stuff, but church history was not her thing. But but my mom was the sort of living embodiment of that. And, and um, you know, I, I was telling a friend the other day that that was so much the case that my parents, particularly my mom's love growing up, was like sunlight in that nobody walks around on a summer day unless it's particularly hot but most of the time you don't walk around thinking wow there's sunlight right it, it just it's just what is right it's like the water that fish swim in it, but but it literally powers everything right it is the energy that allows plants to grow via photosynthesis which then you know, feeds animals and then feeds us, right? So literally everything is dependent on the, the on this sort of omnipresent sunlight. And that's how I felt that 
love was growing up in my home. And that's not to say that my parents never got upset. It's not to say that they, you know, that there was not that again, it's not to say that they didn't make mistakes, but it's just to say that there was a, there was just never question about the fact that we were loved. We were loved if we asked hard questions. We were loved if we made mistakes. We were loved if we were just always loved. And there was always a, an assumption. There was a, there was a sort of a, um, what do I want to say? There, there was a, an assumption that we would always be given the benefit of the doubt, right? So if we were asking a hard question, for example, there was an assumption that behind the hard question was a really beautiful impulse, right? Or if we did something dumb, there was an assumption that there was probably a good explanation for why we made that decision or, or you know, whatever. So that, it, so that instead of the first response being anger, the first response was love and a desire to understand where we were coming from, what led us to want to do that. Right. And, but, but that, the, the security of that love made it so that everything else could make sense. Right. It made it so that, it, that there was room and there was, there was, uh, bandwidth to process whatever else came up. And by extension, it was then the, uh, it, it you know, it was from my parents, though, again, they're imperfect, but it was from my parents that I came to have some idea of how much our heavenly parents must love us, right? And I came to, so so people who talk to me about how they conceptualize of of God as waiting to punish us if we mess up or whatever, that just has no stick for me like it just doesn't i mean like i don't that i just don't think that's true and but i i recognize largely in retrospect that a big part of the reason that i don't think that's true is because that's just not how i ever experienced the world i love that um it's just an interesting home you're growing up in that you've got this sort of intellectual space to process things and you've got this loving sunlight that just creates a feeling it's safe to process all these things and what a recipe for growth um in a very healthy way and i i do recognize that a lot of um me and listeners develop frameworks around our heavenly parents especially as we're growing up by adults in our lives and that can be so important to the adults in our lives and how they treat us because that's how we form impressions about god and if it's the way that your mom framed up our heavenly parents, then I agree with you. We just know they love us and we can love ourselves and do a better job of loving others. So I love that. Yeah. The The third thing I want to talk about is maybe, um, I don't know, I can't identify an explicit example where my parents taught this, but I, I think it was sort of implicit in uh much of many of the specific things they taught and, and just in sort of the feeling in our home and that was the idea that the church was not like pick a past time point it was not then and and is not now what god or, or I, I say it was not then and it is not now all that god needs it to be 
So because that's the case, many things follow from that. The first is that we should actually, in fact, believe what all of us grew up memorizing, that there are many great and important things yet to be revealed, right? We've all repeated that ad nauseum, but then when things actually happen that demonstrate that, we all act shocked as if we didn't actually think that that could ever happen, right? And so the you know easiest and most famous example of this is the revelation in 1978. Now, let me be really, really clear. I have, uh, I claim no ability to understand what it must have been like to be a person of African descent or with apparently dark skin, regardless of the descent in some cases, between the time when Brigham Young reversed Joseph's policy of universal inclusion up through the 1978 revelation. And, and I want to, um, I want to recognize that I don't understand that pain and don't want anything that I say to minimize that or make it seem like it, it is in retrospect, less painful or less important than it is because it's not. Having said that, though, when I look at the 1978 revelation, the way that I think about that is that the way the church is now is, I think, unquestionably the way that God needs it to be. And previously, we were not that. Now, I'm not a historian. I'm not a, you know, you can interview Paul Reeve if you want yeah. details about exactly what happened and 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 all the rest of it that's not my really not my purview but the point is to say that there's a you know there's a a friction point if if you have no room in your heart for the church to become better for it to more fully occupy its ultimate divine destiny then Anytime it changes, that feels kind of wrong in some way, right? It feels like that shouldn't have happened or, or whatever. But, I, but what I'm saying is that we should embrace the church becoming more of what God needs it to be. And furthermore, we should, uh, we should look for ways to... This would mostly be in the context, I would argue, of our local congregations, but we should look for ways to make our local congregations more like the church that God hopes that we will give him. You know, I I have often thought that we usually think of the church as if it's like a package that's sent from heaven or that was sent from heaven in 1820 or 1830 or whatever date you want to use, right? That it was sort of like this Ikea package that arrived at Joseph Smith's door, and then he sort of like unpacked it and kind of assembled most of it. And then from then on, we've sort of been adding a couple of little, you know, extra decorational things. And then that's what the church is, right? But I've come to think, what if we reverse that? And instead of thinking of the church as a package that God sends to us, what if we instead think of the church as an offering that we bring to God? So, so what, if, what I mean by that is, 
what if the church, like, what if my, what if our, whatever ward I'm in, what if the ward that my fellow parishioners and I are creating is the religious offering that we are giving to God, that we're saying, this is what we have created in our little corner of the church, and here's the offering that we're giving to you. And if you think about it that way, then it's easy to think, how closely are we getting our offering to resembling what God wants our word to look like? How, how worthy is our offering of his approbation? And then as an individual member, that leaves me thinking, well, gosh, what would God want our word to look like? And what am I doing that either adds to or detracts from the, the closeness, the, the similarity that our ward has to what God needs our ward to be? And, and so, on the one hand, this idea that the church was not previously and is not yet all that God needs it to be gives me some space and some grace and some generosity for considering ways that the church has evolved over the nearly 200 years of its existence. But then it also, looking forward, can fire me to uh, try to make, whether I'm a sunbeam teacher or a young women's leader or the Relief Society president or the bishop, Whatever, whatever my stewardship is, the question is, what am I doing to make whatever part of the church over which I have stewardship more like the church that God needs it to be? Now, to be clear, I'm not, this is not some sort of uh, veiled call for, you know, going off into strange paths and doing things that are, you know, outside the boundaries of what we're supposed to do. But the truth is that completely within what the, the, the uh, prescribed limits of how, for instance, a ward is supposed to function or a class or whatever is supposed to function, there is so much latitude for the way that you talk about things, how you approach a person, the space that you make for people who maybe you're not exactly like you or who would often be on the margins of the, right? Like we often talk about marginalized people. What if you just tried to make a ward that didn't have any margins, right? Like what would that look like? How would you, if you're the Relief Society president, how do you make a margin-less Relief Society, right? Like I, I think what I'm trying to say is that this is not about, you know, some sort of, you know, going off in your own direction. This is about within your own personal stewardship and utilizing. And, and if you don't think that this is in, you know, communications from Salt Lake, it's all over the place, right? If I, anyway, I could give a hundred conference talks, but the point is that I think that we underestimate the degree to which on a local level, we can try to make the church into Zion. And so that same understanding that the church is not there yet fuels me in my own little imperfect, limited ways to try to make it more like that where I live. 
That's a terrific segment. I'm flooded with a lot of thoughts on that one. I think of Elder Renlund's talk that gives backing for what you're, he talks about the lanes of revelation, the lanes of stewardship. So all of us in our local congregations, however we serve, that's our lane of revelation. That's our lane of stewardship. And I love then the way you take that and say, I, I want to do what I can do in my circle of influence. And I love your idea that a marginalist release society, because in that you're teaching that, I love Sister McConkie's quote, the gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't marginalize people. People marginalize people. We need to fix that. So I don't think it's God's intent for people to be marginalized. And so if it's in our circle of control to create a release society without marginalized people, I think that's possible. And I think the the measure of that is everybody feels like they belong. It's Elder Christofferson's doctrine of belonging as we do everything we can um, for anybody that wants to walk through that door, Elder Uchtdorf teaches there's no do- sign at the door that says our testimony needs to be the side that, to enter. To me, that's a an invitation for everybody to come and then to help everybody feel like they belong. And And it is within our control and these stewardship things to potentially have n- non-marginalized release societies. I've, no one's ever framed that up like that, Tyler. And it's just so doable. And I love the way you sort of talk about it in our circle of influence and our circle of stewardship because, yeah, that's where we can um, create Zion and and work to improve things. So that's just terrific. And I assume our listeners are flooding right now just like I am with ideas that are coming to their mind of what they can do in their circle. You have a very good gift way of framing this up in a way that then, okay, I can do that. Um, and I'm not sort of getting ahead of the brethren or some of these things that cause us caution, um, but actually empower us to do what we're called to do and improve things. So that's very helpful. And this offering I yeah, do. So keep and, sharing. And I, and I think that there's a, um, you know, I really love the verse from Isaiah that, you know, we're distinct as far as I know in the church that we call our regional organizational units, unless you're in Utah, in which case regional <laughs> is like four blocks big. But anyway, <laughs> we call them stakes, right? And But I love the verse in Isaiah that talks about stakes that says that we should be enlarging the borders of the tent, right? That the stakes, that, that the point of the stakes is not to make the tent small, it's to, it's to stretch the tent to be big, right? And if you think about it, it is true that there are people in the church who are called to be judges in Israel. But I think we often get the, the intent of that doctrine exactly backwards, because the reason that there are people called to do that is because everybody else isn't. So unless you're sitting in the bishop's chair, you are not called to be a judge in Israel. End of story. So, so we, I think we have this like cultural sort of like, well, I know, but I'm, I'm still kind of supposed to be judging sometimes just to, I don't know, do boundary maintenance or something, but you are not called to judge people. Now you have to judge, you know, for how you vote and how you think about ideas. And that's not what I'm talking about. But what I'm talking about is that for people, we are, I would much rather spend my entire life trying to stretch the borders of the tent, which again is mostly going to occur where I live, right? I'm not talking about launching crusades. I'm not even talking about social media tirades. I'm talking about where I live right now, right? I would rather spend my life 
stretching the canvas, pulling the canvas, trying to say, oh, look, there is a person who wishes that they could be experiencing the warm glow of the gospel, but they feel that they can't because either their understanding or my understanding or our understanding or somebody's understanding of of the way the gospel works leaves them feeling like they're outside of it. What can I do to stretch the canvas so that it covers them, so that the firelight from inside of the tent reaches to that person? And that seems to me a noble divine work, right? Because what what is the what is the Savior doing except for inviting over and over and over and over and over again? And yes, of course, it is true that sometimes a person who is outside the tent coming inside of the tent involves them moving inside of the tent. And I'm not trying to I'm not trying to question the reality of that. But I'm just saying I can't move the person. Right. But, but what I can, I mean, I can invite them and I can hope that they come, but I can't pick them up and move them. Right. But what I can do is I can try, and I think the verse from Isaiah backs this up. I can try all of that said within the bounds the Lord has set, so to speak. I feel like there is so much untapped potential for us to strengthen the stakes and lengthen the cords and stretch the fabric to try to include everybody, anybody who is on the outside wishing that they were on the inside. And, and there's so much that we can do in that regard that I feel like is just tragically left undone, and that there is nothing stopping us from doing it except for our own lack of imagination and motivation. And so I feel like that sort of big tent understanding is it should be should be firing us it should be a fire beneath our feet because my my i don't know understanding of the gospel is that that is when what the new testament largely tells me is that that's what jesus spent his life doing was he basically went around saying you're outside the tent come inside let me bring the tent to you. Here's the tent. I will heal you where you are. You are in the tent because I love you. My love has offered you a covering, right? And there are some that suggest that the garment is a symbol of God's love offering us a covering, right? We, so all of that is to say that that feels to me like divine work. And you don't even need a calling. That can be your calling as a ministering brother or sister, right? That, like, if that's all you did. And like Lowell Benyon, who some of your listeners may know about, had a, a life that was often, he was often felt frustrated because he was, you know, released from his institute job and under circumstances that were sort of challenging and other things. But so then when that happened, he said, well, okay, I'm just going to go love people anyway. So then he just spent his entire life bringing the glow that is inside of the gospel tent to people wherever they were. And I feel like if we wear out our lives doing that, we will have done much good. The people that I look up to the most in the church are the people who wear out their lives in just that way. I'm really moved, Tyler. (laughs) The visual imagery of, of instead of asking people to move, 
and to get in the tent of, of what you did with Christ and how he covered people with the tent and he met them where they are and helped them feel welcome. And I think of your mother and the love. And I think of what we can do as ward leaders to create this love that your mother modeled in your own home. And as, if we're a ward leader or in charge of an organization, to create that sense of love and and bring the tent to where our members are, especially those that don't feel like they belong. And don't ask them to change first and then come into the tent. Just I've always felt there isn't a belief or behavior hurdle to feel welcome in a congregation. There is to go to the temple, but there's no none of that. And and then I think about how do you model that? And I've always I wish I had done different things like your father did. I think If I were a local leader, I'd proactively talk about how we're going to treat people that have questions about the church or that are concerned about historical issues or current issues or people that are in a faith crisis. This is how we're going to respond to you or however they're going to call it. And um, just sort of proactively create a culture that, you know, whatever, and maybe it's mental health um, or just, or working through sin, that we're just, this is how I as a leader, and this is how we as a ward are going to respond to you. And I think it, people sometimes need to hear that proactively to feel safe opening up about the realities of their lives to parents and to local leaders. I would assume that it was easy to open up to your parents. We've kind of talked about church history, but I would assume the family culture just made it easier to talk to your dad about what was ever going on in your life, whether it was church stuff or just the realities of being a teenager. Because he just was a safe person to have these congregations. But listeners, this idea of, of of taking the stakes up from that tent and moving them, I think of you know, we invite people to come to church and that's sort of the measure, but sometimes that may not be the first step to help them feel welcome in the tent. It may be our efforts to go meet them sort of on their terms. I think of the lost sheep and Christ knew the lost sheep well enough to know where the sheep was and how to find them and sort of what led them to there in the first place. And so I think it causes me to think outside the dots, Tyler, and what could I do to those that aren't attending to sort of, instead of just inviting them to come back or have a social that's just kind of geared to them, sort of go meet them where they are and talk about what, why, what happened to cause them to not participate and, and be willing to hear that, hear that full conversation as just a way to understand where they are and potentially then just the love of that conversation, the acceptance of that conversation, not in an agenda way or transaction way, can be a way to help them feel love. And they may work themselves back into church activity or they may not. But I think we do better when it's sort of non-agenda love, um, but a desire to extend the tent to where they are. And maybe they fully never come back to the church, but we connect with them in another way in our community. I'm thinking of small Salt Lake City wards where we know everybody that's not active or not a member, but we we symbolically sort of help them feel the tent, even if they're not participating in the church. Because I think that's a good thing. Yeah, you know, I um, from time to time I'll read two points here. One is that I'll sometimes read on social media about people who've chosen for whatever reason to distance themselves from the church, and who then say. And since the Sunday we started going, the the children of church members who live next door are no longer allowed to play with our children. And I hear that and I think, what on earth? Like, I, 
I just have no words. I, I'm please understand. I'm not trying to judge the parents whose motives. I'm sure you know. I'm sure they're thinking about the maintaining the long term faith of their children and whatever. But if the maintenance of long term faith requires that, I think we. I think this is a weightier matters of the law question. Wow. That you know, this is just we have got stuff backwards in a deeply painful, harmful way. And and I have my own blind spots, let's be clear, and I have my own stupid stuff that I've done that you know is is its own weightier matters of the law problem. So I, this is the I'll be the pot or the kettle you choose, but I'm just saying like guys come on this is that's not the program i mean that is just not christianity and um I, sort of the reverse of that in a sense let me tell you a brief story back to my parents so to understand the real weight of this story you have to understand that my dad um was went on a mission to columbia when he was on the plane coming back from his mission his parents went to visit a friend and drove up into a canyon uh, just north of, of Salt Lake and Provo. And um, while they were up in the canyon, an early snow struck. Their car veered off the road. They got stuck off the road. My my grandma, my dad's mom, was already in ill, Ill health at the time. And by the time my grandfather hiked down past the snow and flagged a truck that was able to get through the snow, to pick up my grandmother, she had died. Wow. And so when my father arrived home from his mission, the first church meeting he went to upon arriving home was his mom's funeral. Wow. And so with that as backdrop, um, there was this time when I was in high school, this was back before anybody had cell phones or ways of getting in touch with each other like that. Um, I went off one afternoon and, you know, being stupid, I neglected to tell my parents where I was going. And there was a, you know, a set of about five homes that I would always go to in high school. And so when they realized that I wasn't there a couple hours later, they called those five homes, but I wasn't at any of them. It turned out that I was, I was rehearsing a musical number to audition for a high school program thing the next day, but we were at some word building and nobody had really told their respective parents where we were going. So the point is nobody knew where we were. So, um, and, you know, one thing led to another and I lost track of time and I was just having fun and I didn't realize I hadn't told anybody and whatever. The point is that like five or six hours passed and my parents by this time had called everybody they could think of, everybody they knew who knew me and nobody knew anything about my whereabouts. And you can imagine, I can only imagine with this backdrop that I provided before, what kinds of thoughts must have been racing through my father's head. Right. And so, and I'm totally oblivious to any of this, right? I'm just some stupid teenager off doing stupid teenager stuff. So then when I get home, so then I'm on my way home, I have no idea anybody's worried, whatever, right? So if you pause the reel at just that moment, when I walked in the door, if any teenager ever deserved to be yelled at, reamed out, you know, threatened to within an inch of his life, grounded until he was 37, whatever, it would have been me. And so I walk in the door and there are both of my parents sitting in chairs, looking and waiting at the door. 
And all they did was start crying, grab me in a big hug, hold me there for I don't know how long, say, you have no idea how worried we've been. And then after we sat in that moment for however long, they went to bed. So what I'm saying is that I, the scriptures tell me, Luke 17 tells me, that's how it works, right? When the, or 15, 17, I don't remember, the prodigal son, when the prodigal son leaves, when he comes home, clearly expecting that dad is going to say, down with the pig son, if he lets him in at all. Even though the prodigal son has been gone for however long, the scriptures say that when he gets home, he doesn't even get to the gate. His dad, as best we can tell, is still standing at the gate, scanning the horizon, waiting for the son to come home. And the first experience the son has, still yet far way off, the scripture says, is the father sprinting in his, I like to imagine, old age on his old feet sprinting to meet his son and wrapping him in a hug and just crying and saying, with the pigs, what are you talking about? Where's the robe? Where's the fatted calf? Let's make a feast. So then the question becomes, why on earth would our experience as members ever be anything but that? Like, what could be... I, I mean, that's the, that's the program. That is the program, especially because guess what? All of us are prodigals. Some of us hide it better than others. And, and some of us have it, you know, sort of broadcast on our bodies or in the way we talk or in the things that people know about us. But that doesn't mean that those people are prodigals and the other people aren't, as Elder Holland said, right? That the talk he gave about that parable was called the other prodigal. And the whole point was that the quote-unquote good son is just as much making a journey away from the father and back to the father as the quote-unquote bad son. All of us are prodigals, right? And so in my mind, that's what also when King Benjamin talks about, uh, you know, gives this great sermon, we often misinterpret Mosiah chapter 4 as if what it's talking about is things we're supposed to try to do. But what it's actually saying is, if you have experienced true Christian conversion, here's the way that you will know. These will be your attitudes. This will be the substance of your spiritual life. And the thing that he focuses the most on in that entire chapter is how what is our visceral instinctive response when we see a beggar on the street? And he does not mince words, right? He says, if you have actually been born again, if you have actually experienced true Christian conversion, the way that you'll know is that when you encounter a beggar on the street, your response will be, we are all beggars. We are all dependent on the grace of Jesus Christ. So how could I do anything but help you beggar on the street? Because that's what, because I am you every day. When I pray for grace, I am you. So how, like what kind of nonsensical response would it be to do anything except help? Right? And so I, I just feel like, and sorry, I, now I'm up on a soapbox, but I'm just saying I just feel like what we need, like there is so much division in the church right now. There's so, like we've been infected with with partisanship in the United States at least, and, and 
you know, we are riven between conservatives and Democrats and progressives and this and that and whatever. But I feel like the energy, to use a youthful word, that, that we need is the energy that King Benjamin tells us should define our response to a beggar or the energy that the Savior tells us in the parable of the prodigal son defines the way that the father responds to the prodigal son, the energy that my parents showed to me when as an absolute teenage numbskull, I came back and uh, was, was, you know, having worried them beyond all reason for all of these hours and every bit deserving of a, a lecture and of shouting and everything else, instead found nothing but love that moved them to tears. I feel like that's the energy that gets us to take the tent to wherever the people that we love are. And that's the energy that gets the Savior to bring the tent to us. Okay, I'll get off my soapbox now. I think our listeners like you on your soapbox. Um, <laughs> I've written down a lot of things in this podcast, listeners. I may re-listen to this. I usually don't do that. Um, I love my prophets, warts and all. Um, create breathing room. Bring the tent to you. Um, I love, you know, listeners, I went through what I call a mini faith crisis. I've talked about that. And when I reached out to my stake president, told him some of the things I was uncomfortable about, I had to do some deconstruction and reconstruction because I grew up with the fairy tale. I was never exposed to the gospel topic essays. I was never exposed to the things Tyler was. And my stick president did a great job. He, he sort of gave me permission to have a fallen domino or two. And when all dominoes, the, the imagery of if one, dom, one domino falls, they all fall. But he says, well, and I had dominoes with really deep roots around the things Tyler's talked about. My testimony of the, re, of the restored gospel and the unique doctrine that came through the prophet Joseph Smith. So. That gave me a way forward, um, but I, I think the better way forward is to create the sort of framework that you that was created for you, and you're probably creating in your ward and your circles of influence and for guests on the podcast. And I think teaching the gospel topic ex- essays and and you know knowing the non fairy tale version of our church history, saints is a good resource, and then being able to teach that we don't have young kids in our home anymore, and some of you do and don't, but. You might have grandkids or you have circle of influence and it can be a little jarring to hear about Joseph Smith's polygamy and the reality of that. But I think the long-term way to work through that is what Tyler's teaching. I think, you know, I'm thinking of Top Gun for some reason. You can't handle the truth. And I think we actually can <laughs> if it's taught in a way that's sustainable with the nuance and the perspective and the understanding. I think we can handle the truth about our church history. Um, because in that whole truth is this beautiful restored doctrine, but some warts. And I like the word warts. <laughs> um, you, I don't know if you want to talk about the BYU article where it's about teaching. Maybe you've already talked about some of the principles and there. We're going to link to that in the show notes if you want to read more about um, Tyler's thoughts. But just one closing segment or anything else you want to say, Tyler? Yeah, I well, I think that... Um here's the maybe the ultimate thing that i i think we need to be we need to understand i i think that one of the great modern myths of the church is that 
I, I don't think in the church, sometimes maybe we try to now divide people into good guys and bad guys. But I think the, the way we think about it more now is that we kind of divide church members into people who have it all figured out and people who don't have it all figured out. <laughs> and so then the people who have it all figured out, they get called to be, I don't know, institute teachers and Relief Society presidents and bishops and whatever. And then the people who don't have it all figured out go to the people who have it all figured out to figure it out. My estimation is that that's just totally false because I don't think anybody has it all figured out. And I certainly don't. And I feel like what instead needs to be clear is that everybody's a mess. We're just all a mess. Mortality's a mess. Everything's messy. Everything is messy. Everybody's a mess. Everybody's a working work in progress. And that should just be our starting point. So your bishop is a work in progress. Your stake president is a work in progress. The person teaching you in Sunday school is a work in progress. So if one of those people says something stupid or or bigoted or harmful, this none of this questions the harm of that. But it's just to say that instead of us thinking, well, why does that person who thinks they have it figured out, and to be clear, they may actually think they have it figured out, but they don't. But instead of thinking, why does this person who thinks they have it figured out, why are they making this really harmful mistake? What a more beautiful and grace-filled position to think, oh, (laughs) I don't have it all figured out. And I'm sure I've made some mistakes like that. And this person, even if they think they have it figured out, they actually don't have it figured out. So I should pray for the ability to offer them grace and space as they figure it out. Now, that may involve kindly going to them and saying, you know what? I know that you were trying to do your best when you talked about the idea that maybe the reason that um, Black people couldn't hold the priesthood of Mary in the temple before 1978 was that they weren't ready for it. But can I just share a perspective about why Maybe that's a really harmful thing to say. I know you didn't mean any harm. I'm not questioning your motives, but I just want to let you know what the effect of that was on me. But see, that's such a different paradigm than either just not caring or saying, oh, you terrible, bigoted Sunday school teacher, what do you think you're doing, right? Which is to say that once you accept that everybody's work in progress and everything is messy, mortality is messy and mortals are messy, period. No exceptions. Joseph Smith was messy. Brigham Young was messy. Gordon B. Hinckley was messy. Everybody's messy. That's okay. We're all a mess. It's okay. So once you accept that, then it becomes, then all of life, whether you're dealing with the sunbeams or whether you're dealing with your stake president, is an exercise in seeking the personal endowment of grace that you need to then offer an endowment of grace and space to everybody around you, your leaders, your, your the people over whom you have stewardship, everybody, all of us need grace and space. And at the end of the day, maybe that's actually one of the most beautiful truths of the gospel is that even prophets and apostles are messy and need grace and space. And so when I'm messy and I need grace and space, I shouldn't think, oh, well, I'm categorically different than the people who have it figured out. 
because all of us are works in progress. And this is not to question the prophetic mantle or the idea that Joseph Smith restored important truths or anything else. It's, it's just to decouple those ideas, to say someone can be messy and still restore important truths, or someone can be messy and still be a great bishop or a great Relief Society president or Sunday school teacher or whatever. So I, I just feel like that recognition that mortality is messy and that mortals are messy and that therefore all of us need grace and space ourselves and that the project of life largely is to learn to offer grace and space to everybody else seems central to the gospel project. It's a great segment, great finishing segment. Um, listeners, I'm just deeply moved. I didn't know a lot about Tyler. I, we do so many podcasts. I don't do this big vetting process, um, but I saw a Facebook post and just had an impression and Tyler got a message from me and said, yeah, I'd be glad to do that. But this has been really personally moving for me and very helpful. Um, we're called to be gatherers, not sifters. I think of the gathering of Israel and I used to think, and I've talked about this, about the couple in a faraway country praying for the missionaries. And I still think of that, but I think of our wards and our stakes and our young women's and young men's and part of the gathering of Israel is, is taking those tent stakes up and and bringing them to the people we're responsible for. They are Israel, and they need to feel gathered, not sifted, as Tyler's invited us not to do. So, Tyler Johnson, I also, you are a gifted teacher. You probably don't want to uh, be praised on this podcast. You have a gift of teaching, and I'm glad that you're not only in this practice helping people as an oncologist, but I'm glad you're teaching at, at Stanford, the medical school, and be able to communicate in an effective teaching way, the things um, that medical students need to know to be effective doctors. So you do much good in our community, in our world. And on behalf of all of our listeners, thank you for being on the podcast. Yeah, of course, Richard. It's been a pleasure to be here. I hope uh, I hope people will offer me grace and space. I'm sure I said things that I could have said better. So I hope you'll bear that in mind that I needed as much as anybody else. And I, I appreciate the opportunity to come on. All the best. Thanks. Thanks, listeners. We're Richard and Tyler signing off from another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. <laughs>